Those of you who don't know us, just to introduce us, my name's Christina, this is Jenny, and this is John. So the three of us will be very much sort of leading this retreat with your support, I hope. So for those of you who haven't been here, I'm before, I'm, I'm very aware that ending up in somewhere like Gaia House can initially be a little bit startling, and you might already be thinking, what have I got myself into? Skeletons in rooms, Buddha statues, you know, various kind of pictures you probably never really expected to meet, but there they are. And some of you are really not familiar, I understand, with a silent, intensive retreat. And and I am aware that the prospect of that can be a little bit daunting in the beginning. Um, You will manage it. It will be fine. It will absolutely be fine. So this evening what we'd like to do is to give you a little bit of an overview of the retreat, talk a little bit about the practice that we'll be engaging in, the background and the possibilities of this practice. And a lot of this retreat will be really looking at and exploring both in the teaching and in the practice the origins of the mindfulness work that you are all engaged in, in your lives. So you will hear us over the days making considerable references to the teachings of the Buddha. I want to make it very clear this evening that we have no underlying agenda to convert anyone to Buddhism. We are not trying to introduce sort of Buddhism by stealth. But what we really want to do is to really have an in-depth understanding of where mindfulness comes from. And the very, very rich fabric that mindfulness is and the role that mindfulness plays in the transformation of the heart, of the mind, of our lives. Now, mindfulness as we understand it is is pretty much of a newcomer in Western therapeutic traditions. In fact, you know, I have even read newspaper articles that claim that mindfulness was invented in America 25 years ago. I did write back to the journalist and say that it's told them they missed two zeros off the 25, that this has actually been... Mindfulness is very central in most spiritual traditions. But in the Buddhist tradition... Mindfulness has always played this very pivotal role in the teaching of liberation. Um, Many psychologists have made 
journeys to Asia have spent time studying the Buddhist psychology, the Buddhist teaching of transformation. And sometimes I've been a little bit surprised to discover how this elegant map of consciousness, this very detailed, very in-depth tracing of the nature of consciousness has really been around, in this tradition anyway, for a very, very long time. And although what happens in Asia is very different than how we live our lives, how we live in our culture, really what this map of liberation or the map of transformation is really speaking to is a very universal story and a very timeless human story. When the Buddha was asked what he taught, really what his teaching was all about, he really said, I just teach one thing, that there is suffering and there is an end of suffering. And out of that, he really developed a path that can be cultivated, that can be accessed, that really teaches us how to understand suffering and how to bring about the end of distress. The Buddha spoke very much about the healing of torment and this practice that was accessible to anyone, that you didn't need to be a monastic to do this, you didn't need to be an academic, you didn't need to be a scholar, that in really in order to understand this very kind of key lesson of how to bring about the end of distress, the end of alienation, the end of, of, of struggle, all that any of us needs is simply to have a body, to have a mind, and a genuine willingness to commit ourselves to the path. One thing that I would say that in a, this teaching that, that we'll be exploring here this week in the retreat, the, the practice of insight meditation called the Dharma, the Dharma has always been in a process of translation right from its very beginnings 2,500 years ago. When this teaching moved out of India into China, into Tibet, into Burma, into Thailand, into Sri Lanka, there was always a process of translation going on as this teaching met these different cultures, learning how to speak to those cultures. And I think that process of translation is really so much continuing to go on as this teaching of mindfulness, the teaching of insight, very much becomes rooted in our culture. It's a translation that is continuing. And part of that translation, I think, is this remarkably rich dialogue that is happening between this very ancient teaching and the contemporary applications of it in our culture, in our world, in our lives, in relationship to therapeutic applications, in relationship to neuroscience. And I think that dialogue that is happening is one actually that enriches both traditions. 
It's very much mutually enriching. I think it's very important to kind of like really speak to the universal story. You know, 2,500 years ago, you know, in India, a very different time, a very different place than our own. It's really remarkable when you read the early Buddhist texts how much people's minds really were just like ours. The people were constantly coming to the Buddha with these sort of timeless questions. You know, what do I do with the realities of aging and loss and death? You know, what do I do with the realities of change, of impermanence? What do I do with the reality of the fact that I don't always get what I want and I often get what I don't want? You know, what do I do with the reality of this body that you know, ages and sickens and dies. What do I do with the reality of this mind that sometimes feels like a mystery? You know, how did I end up here? How did this happen? How did I come to think of myself as being this kind of person rather than that kind of person? And these are the questions, you know, you you read the early text and you think, hmm, I recognize this. It sounds very, very familiar. And I think it's so important to expand the sense of what we're doing here and and really into that understanding that we are really speaking to this universal story just as when all of you, I'm sure, go out into your various workplaces. How much we see the universality of this mind, that this heart, this has the potential for such richness, such happiness, such joy, and this same heart and mind that has this potentiality for such struggle and such distress and such sorrow. And part of what we do here in our own practice is really to understand that potentiality, to really look at what is possible for us as human beings within this universal story and yet also this very particular story of my life, my body, my mind. When the people came to the Buddha with these questions, he he talked about the different ways of responding to to distress and to sorrow. And he said, some of these ways are actually going to lead to more distress and some of the ways of responding are going to lead to the end of distress. And he talked about some of the classical ways that distress and confusion and suffering is responded to. One of the classical pathways I'm sure we have all bumped into here and there is despair. Depression. Life is unfair. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do. One of the ways of responding to distress and struggle and suffering is anger, aversion, resistance. This shouldn't be happening. Ever found yourself saying that? This shouldn't be happening. You know, this shouldn't be happening to me. 
Or part of that, that anger and resistance can be fault-finding. You know, it's my fault I'm suffering, or it's your fault that you're making me suffer. But that whole movement to, to push away life, to, to push away what is happening in the moment. A third of the pathways that actually I've thrown into this mix, the Buddha didn't talk about it because it seems particularly a more contemporary uh, complexity, is the reaction of guilt. You know, I, I surely deserve to suffer. You know, it's because I'm such an unworthy person or because of <clears throat> I make so many mistakes or I do so many things wrong. You know, I surely must deserve to suffer. And what the Buddha talked about in these sort of classical human reactions is that these are the ways that compound suffering. These are the ways to make ourselves more unhappy. These are the ways to make ourselves feel more limited, more, more confined, less of a sense of possibility. And then the Buddha, what the Buddha talked about is that there is another way, and this is what you will all have been so familiar with in your own practice and your own work. And he said to investigate, to investigate, to understand to be mindful, to explore, to inquire, to look at the ways that perpetuate pain and to look at the ways of healing and liberating. That sense of possibility, that possibility of transformation, the possibility of an abiding well-being, the possibility of an abiding understanding, a trans- radical transformation, cognitive transformation. I think this is what has always kind of attracted people to this tradition and to this practice. But I think that is also kind of a timeless story. It is what attracts people to come into many of your clinics, many of your therapeutic situations that sense that it is possible to actually find the way to heal our hearts, to liberate our minds, to bring about the inner transformations that really do bring suffering and struggle to an end. So I think probably I've, I've actually gone over my allotted time. Um, so, Joan, do you want to... Oh. Yeah. So let me add my own very warm welcome to that Christina has offered. It's, it's really lovely to see you here. I want to talk about some of the general attitudes um, that it's helpful to bring to and cultivate in the course of this retreat. In many parts of our lives, there's a fairly direct link between the action that we will and 
getting the outcome that we want. If I want this microphone to be a little bit higher, I just will the action, and if that would just be... <laughs> even with a little adjustment, um, I can get the outcome I want. There's a sort of fairly direct linkage. But you may already have noticed that in meditation experience and in inner experience more generally, that doesn't quite work the same way. However much I'd like it to be so, I cannot simply will myself to have a calm and peaceful mind and ping, it happens just in the way that I was able to get the microphone where I wanted it. Similarly, you know, however much I'd love to be overflowing with kindness and compassion and to have deep and clear insights, I cannot, by an effort of will alone, make it happen. We can't force our experience to be a particular way. That doesn't mean that we're helpless. Because the core insight the Buddha had was that suffering arises as a result of a set of conditions. But it can also cease if we change those conditions and create a different set. So although we can't will the end of suffering, we can arrange conditions which make it more likely that it will happen. But we need to bring a different approach to it. We, if you like, you know, plant seeds, we work like a gardener or a farmer, we till the soil beforehand, we water, we weed, and then we have to trust the process and allow the conditions to mature in their own good time if they will. I'm sure many of you have already used this kind of horticultural metaphor in introducing mindfulness-based applications to encourage patience on the part of your clients. Well, really, that's the model of this whole retreat, that we can't force things to happen, but we can, by cultivating certain conditions, make it more likely that they will happen. But we have to be patient and trust the process. So what are these crucial conditions? Well, obviously, some of them are the specific meditation techniques we'll be focusing on. And you'll be getting instructions, um, perhaps more than you would like uh, from day to day, on those. Um, but... There are more general conditions that are equally as important as these specific techniques. Conditions that, if you like, create a background, a climate that we can nurture every single moment as best we can within the retreat that can facilitate the process that we're seeking to support. And we can begin that right now. Clearly, mindfulness is one of those background conditions. I'm sure you encourage your clients, your patients, you know, as well as 
practicing the formal techniques to bring an affectionate curiosity, this benign interest, to all aspects of their life as best they can. And that's an encouragement that we will offer frequently throughout the retreat. I mean, that will be a very familiar emphasis to you, I'm sure. But there are other conditions that may be less obvious but are equally important. And one way to remember these is to be aware that within this training package, this sort of comprehensive, integrated package for the relief of suffering that the Buddha developed, he identified three wise intentions or underlying motivations. And it may be helpful to remember these as a reminder of what you can do moment by moment to cultivate the conditions for release from suffering. They were kindness, compassion, and letting go or renunciation. Kindness, compassion, letting go. And kindness is really the most obvious and the most crucially important of all of these. It's at least as important to this path of practice as mindfulness. And it really provides the foundation for all the practices that are part of the path. By kindness, I mean the simple intention of bringing goodwill. Goodwill to ourselves, a gentleness, a kindness, moving softly, gently, being kind to ourselves when things are difficult, uh, taking care of ourselves, being kind to others. Although we can't talk to them, we can offer them silently our best wishes as we pass them. We can be generous. So in a work period, if you've finished up and there are other people carrying on, you, know, you can nurture that spirit of generosity by just going and helping them. If there are flies or wasps trapped trying to get out of a window, we can let them out. Kindness to our experience. And here that means allowing our experience to be just as it is. We all have this habitual tendency to demand of our experience very often that it be other than it is to try to say, you know, it shouldn't be like this. I I don't want it this way. And obviously, what we're about is nurturing conditions in which suffering will release, but the way we do that is originally, initially, offering our experience the kindness of letting it be there without getting into a struggle with it, without demanding that it be other than it is. So kindness to ourselves, to each other, and to our experience particularly. Patience is equally a part of that kindness to our experience. You'll have many opportunities for practicing that. Big retreat, long queues. Um, Rather than sort of fretting, you know, this shouldn't be so, it should be organized better, you know, It's an opportunity to allow the experience to be as it is and see what you can learn from it. The second wise intention, compassion. And really this is kindness in the context of suffering. It's allowing ourselves to open 
to suffering in ourselves and in others and allowing the heart's natural response of resonating with the suffering and wishing wholeheartedly for a healing of that suffering to arise. And this, as I'm sure many of you will know, become increasingly important in people's recognition of what's vital in MBCT, MBSR, Results from the work that's been going on in Exeter near here show that, you know, if you're trying to understand what carries the effects of mindfulness-based training, it's changes in self-compassion as much as mindfulness that are important. So we've got many opportunities when our minds are all over the place, when it's difficult, when we might ordinarily get on ourselves and start criticizing ourselves, judging ourselves, These are the opportunities to bring compassion to ourselves. The third wise intention, renunciation, letting go. And there are two aspects to this. The first I've already touched on, really, which is letting things be as they are. Letting go of the struggle, the need to have things be different, to let go as best we can of the shoulds, and have-tos. There's this lovely phrase I bear in mind, the mind of non-contention, which means not getting into an argument with our experience. The second way we can cultivate this attitude of letting go is by cultivating simplicity. You know, in principle, mindfulness is so simple. The idea of bringing mindfulness to one moment at a time, taking care of this moment, and in that way, taking care of the next moment, and so of everything that unfolds thereafter. But I'm sure you found, while it's simple, it's not easy. And it's not easy because we forget to be mindful, we forget to take care of the moment. And that's because we've got so many things on our minds, the busyness, the agendas, the to-do list, the decision-making, the planning. Here is this amazing opportunity just to strip all that away, to let go of that, to live very simply. You know, all you're asked to do is walk, sit, walk, sit, listen, eat, go to sleep. And so the invitation is very much to take advantage of this unique opportunity, just to lay aside, perhaps make a little pile of them right now by the side of you, all the agendas you've been carrying these past few days, all the concerns, all the issues, all the deadlines you're working towards, just breathe out, relax, soften, make a pile of them, little pile, big pile, just here. They'll wait for you, I'm sure, and just see if you can... Find this space of a little more simplicity and just focus in on the moment. Thoreau, much loved of John Kabat-Zinn, put it this way, Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify. And Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching puts it this way, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day 
something is acquired. In the pursuit of the Tao, which is the path that we're on in many ways, every day something is let go. So a very different approach. So, the main thing, the main message I'd like to leave with you tonight after you've settled in, softened, relaxed, made yourself at home, tied up any loose ends, is from now on to attempt to bring these conditions, these attitudes to bear, and in particular, as much as possible, to approach every moment with kindness. You know, it's simple, but we need to remember. Okay, so let me wish you a good retreat, peaceful retreat, a relaxed retreat. Thank you. I'd just like to add my very warm welcome to to Gaia House. Um, I feel very fortunate and privileged to be um, assisting John and Christina on this retreat, as they've both been important teachers to me over the years, um, both personally and in in books. So, um, and I'm sure to to some of you as well. And if they haven't been in the past, I'm sure they will be in the future. So I just want to say some things to put the practice of mindfulness meditation that we'll be focusing on on the retreat into um, a particular context that uh, in the Buddhist tradition we call the the threefold way, which is to to practice on a foundation of ethical behavior with the the threefold way is the ethical foundation the meditation practice, and then the the insight or the liberation that comes as a result, which will be spoken about during the talks and during the retreat. So I want to focus on the ethical foundation. And as as, uh, Christina said, this doesn't require any allegiance to, to the Buddhist tradition. You don't have to sign up to anything. But really just acknowledging as we approach retreat, as we approach meditation practice, that our general lifestyle and, and the values that it's based on have a very powerful effect on our mental states. Um, in a way, this, this is also implicit in the attitudinal foundation of, of MBCT or MBSR. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's traditionally encapsulated in terms of five ethical trainings or guidelines we call them precepts. So they're very much not commandments. Um, often we, we bring to them our, our conditioning and maybe feel that, that they're rules or regulations. In one of the ancient texts, the um, precepts are described as five great gifts. Because in practicing them, especially in a large group like this, practicing on retreat together, we're, we're giving each other, we're giving other people, other beings, freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. So if we give those to each other by practicing the precepts, 
that's very mutually supportive on retreat. And uh, these, the ethical precepts are seen as a foundation to practice, but they also they describe what arises naturally out of insight and out of compassion. That this is the way that we would naturally behave if we really understood the consequences of our actions. If we really saw that acting out of self-centered desire actually causes suffering to ourselves and others, and acting out of kindness and compassion actually leads to joy. This is how we would behave. But in the meantime, taking these five guidelines on as precepts supports us on that journey. And they describe aspects of behavior, but they they also really are rooted in our mental states. So it's part of training our mind to to take on the precepts. Um, To practice them requires mindfulness. It requires care and attention. So the first of the five uh, guidelines, the training precepts, is to abstain from killing or harming any living being. And John has touched on how might this might inform our relationship to the small creatures that we might find in our rooms, spiders and wasps and whatever. Um, within the Buddhist tradition, there is some debate about how this relates to, to meat-eating and vegetarianism. I think it's more important just to be aware of the potential suffering that might be caused by the way we live our lives. Uh, but on the retreat, the, the invitation is to, um, well, the option is to eat a vegetarian diet. But I think more importantly, really, than thinking in terms of not harming is, as John was saying, to think in terms of kindness and generosity to those around us. Um, as he said, it's a crowded retreat, and there will be plenty of opportunities to practice tolerance and, and patience to each other. The conditions are not perfect. I'm not quite sure what perfect retreat conditions would be, but you will find many times during the week that there will be a, a gap between how it is and how you would really like it to be. And in a way, in this tradition, that's a great opportunity because it's in that gap that we have the choice to either perpetuate suffering by wanting it to be different and resisting and protesting or to just let it be as it is. And, and practice that, that um, letting go, that acceptance. So basically the first precept is abstaining from harm and therefore behaving with kindness. The second uh, principle is not to take anything that isn't clearly given to you. And obviously in terms of the retreat, just being really clear what is being offered and what isn't. Um, But again, it it invites a a practice of generosity and considerateness to each other. So if you're not quite sure that something is being offered or is being given, just to check that out. The third principle is not to um, exploit any other person through sexuality. And uh, on retreat, uh, the invitation is to abstain from any sexual activity at all. Um, out of respect for everybody else that's here and just as a way of really channeling our energy, focusing on the practice. Um, And the the literal 
translation of the, the ancient Pali for this precept is actually not to misuse the senses. So we could see this in terms of just noticing our tendency to want to indulge our senses and, and simplifying, as John said, um, and just seeing what, what that's like. The fourth um, precept is not to engage in harmful speech. So this means both um, telling the truth, avoiding lying, and also traditionally um, it's framed in terms of avoiding harsh speech or divisive speech or speech that is just completely frivolous and, and meaningless. On retreat, we actually invite um, everyone to maintain noble silence, so to speak only as necessary, for example, to the coordinators during the work period or in the interview groups to the teachers. Uh, and I'll say a little more about the practice of silence um, later. Um, but in everyday life, it is avoiding that those um, harmful speech, either through untruth or unkind speech. And the final, the fifth and final precept is to avoid intoxication. So obviously, um, this doesn't include prescribed medication. You know, please take any medication you need to take. But it includes avoiding alcohol and any intoxicating drugs, recreational drugs. Um, and I would suggest that you see it in terms of avoiding tobacco as well, if you do smoke. But if you, if you must smoke, please go out of the grounds to do so. But it can just be an interesting practice to see if that's really necessary on retreat. So the intention here is simply to keep our minds as clear and bright as possible. And, and often that helps us to become more aware of our, our cravings for, for various kinds of intoxication. I mean, in everyday life, we can intoxicate ourselves with all kinds of things, television, um, you know, loud music, all sorts of distractions. And there's nothing wrong with them in themselves, but, but just noticing how we often use those to dull our awareness. So... Um, so these are very much invitations to, to really just see what it's like to just have that level of awareness around those five areas of our behavior. And I just want to say a little more about silence because this can be very challenging if you're new to a completely silent week-long retreat. And the, the idea of the silence is really just to give support to our meditation practice uh, and to mindfulness in general. So it's a very different way to be with other people than, than we're probably used to. And it's very mutual. If we all observe the silence, it really supports everybody here. So we can drop our concerns about what kind of image we're projecting, what kind of impression people are having. We don't have to be witty. We don't have to impress with our repartee. So it can be a great relief to drop all that. And it can be challenging. We can't just escape into conversation when things get tough. But it can allow a really deeper experience of ourselves and our mental states to avoid the distraction of, of the amount of talking that happens in the world. 
And, and when we leave the retreat, often it makes us more aware of how much we talk and of the content of it and of how necessary or not some of it is. So it supports us in practicing wise speech in everyday life. So on retreat, just a few practical points. Noble silence or silence in retreat, it's not simply the absence of speech. So really inviting you to let go of reading while you're here. Um, whether it's Dharma books or novels, really, just keeping them in your bag if you brought them with you. And just allowing, again, that, that, that other way of distracting yourself, just letting go of that. Um, you may like to write some notes on the talks, but really, again, avoiding writing copious journals or taking detailed notes and kind of trusting that the experience is, is going in without writing it all down. Sometimes it can just... I know one of the first retreats I came on here, I completely ignored this instruction, <laughs> wrote a copious journal, and then the next day looked at it and thought, this is just a, a record of the minutiae of my mental states, and they had all gone by the next day, so... It was a great relief to just let go of it. One of the very challenging things, I think, on retreats nowadays is um, the access that we all have to mobile phones. And so silence includes not texting, not checking your texts, and not phoning anybody. And I think this is, is hard if you've got family and friends at home who might not understand, you know, why, how come you're incommunicado for a week. So really inviting you, you might need to phone them tonight and just say that, that you're really going to, to try and take this practice on uh, and that you won't be in touch with them again until Friday. Now, obviously, and, and I know for one or two people here, there are some really good reasons to make an exception, that if there's somebody at home who's sick, there's somebody at home, you know, there's a need to be in contact. Of course, you need to be the best, your own judge of, of that. Uh, but if there are any emergencies at home, they ought to have the number of Gaia House. And if they phone, there is a, an emergency mobile phone number that is on the answering machine. So... Again, if, if you need to give that number to somebody, please do that this evening so that they can uh, get in touch if they need to. And I think the coordinators are very willing to put your mobile phone in a box for the duration of the retreat if you just would really like to not even be tempted. And there will be a waking bell every morning so you don't need to use it as an alarm. So if, um, the, yeah, just the, another couple of things about communication. Um, if you're concerned about somebody, uh, please don't write notes to each other, to other um, yogis, other meditators, but just draw the attention of one of the teachers or one of the coordinators that there's somebody you're concerned about. Um, and... Of course, if you have any questions or issues you need to um, connect with the coordinators about, and of course there'll be uh, reasons to write notes to teachers, you know, please do so. Uh, but with a sense of, of what's really necessary as well. Um, so, um, yeah, when, when you need to communicate, do it by, by leaving a note on the notice board for a teacher or a coordinator. And just to be aware of 
our tendency to maybe sometimes engage in unnecessary nonverbal communication. So we may have friends here and it can be it can be nice to just smile and look at them as we pass in the corridor. But that can also just be another um, way that we slightly take ourselves out of our experience. So on some strict retreats, people are invited not to make eye contact. We're not being that strict. It's really up to you. But just to have a sense of having custody of the eyes, having a sense of knowing why you might be making eye contact and when it might be better just to to stay present to your own experience. So um, I really want to invite this as, as a practice that is, is not being uh, presented in, in, in some sort of way of, um, you know, a rigid silence that you have to keep, but really as an invitation to, to a, a new level of stillness that is difficult to access really any other way. So that potentially this can, can help us to connect with a level of silence in the mind that is there even in the midst of activity. Um, I heard a, a Hindu teacher once describe this as the riverbed of the mind is silence. The thoughts and things are like the river, but we can connect with that riverbed of silence at any time. Uh, and practicing silence on retreat is a real support to this. Uh, the Persian writer Hafiz said, a day of silence is a pilgrimage in itself. So a week of silence is seven days of, of pilgrimage. Thank you. Um, just, just one postscript to that um, for those of you who are uh, new to retreats or new to being here, please, please don't think that we're just going to now abandon you into silence for the next week and, you know, we'll check in with you next Friday. How was it, by the way? Um, we will actually be, be meeting with you on a very regular basis um, and we will also be providing some times in the hall for some question times. And at the very end of the retreat, we will be um, arranging some peer group groups at the very end, okay? Um, so we're not just kind of like, okay, we've done our job, we're going home now, <laughs> see, you, see you next week. We will be actually meeting with you quite regularly. But to acknowledge that silence certainly is one of, I think, in my experience, it's one of the most powerful ingredients of this whole retreat set up. Because it, it, it's, it's somehow in this silence, which is, uh, you know, it's more than just not speaking. It's about how we listen inwardly. How we really come to know the, the movements of our own minds and hearts. And, you know, so much of our life is to do with what's going on out there. And we're not always so aware of what's going on in here. And I think silence really invites that that kind of inner listening, that inner intimacy. So I really, again, join, really support Jenny in encouraging you to take this piece of the retreat on very wholeheartedly. Okay, so... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.